Headlines like these have been topping news bulletins for weeks now. European leaders are on their way to the Ukrainian capital despite ongoing shelling on the outskirts of the city. The pregnant woman who was pulled out of the rubble of a maternity hospital has lost her life along with her baby. There is a humanitarian crisis erupting on multiple fronts. The stories coming out of Ukraine and its neighboring countries have been heartbreaking. And as the war continues, it's touched many lives outside of the region as well. Emotionally, Ukrainian children are becoming refugees at a rate of one per second, according to the UN. And financially, oil prices continue to surge as Western allies of Ukraine battled Russia over oil imports. Given Russia's status as a major exporter of oil, this war has led to an extreme fuel crisis. But the cause and effect here isn't exactly straightforward. Today, we hope to unravel the ins and outs of rising gas prices around the world. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. On Sunday, March 13th, our producer Priyanka Tilvey had the unfortunate, as she puts it, need to fill up her car's fuel tank in the U.S. capital, Washington, D.C. So I'm pulling into the gas station. It says it's 4.59 a gallon today. Less than I've seen in other parts of the city. Um, there were some parts of D.C. where I saw 4.99, but 4.59 is still crazy high. I think that's right around the average that we're seeing across the U.S. In just two weeks, gas prices in the U.S. rose 22%. And inflation is also at record highs. So all basic products are costing way more than usual right now. Okay, so for comparison's sake, I just filled up half a tank. That came out to $31. And the last time I filled up was February 17th. So I filled up half a tank then as well. And it cost $23.37. So uh, that's an $8 difference. So a full tank would have been a $16 difference. Fortunately for me, that's something I can afford, but that's not the case for everyone. There have been reports of drivers around the world having to choose between gas and groceries. Here's my colleague Kareem Shuhayeb in Lebanon, where gas prices have gone up more than a third in the past week. So if you step into a petrol station in Beirut or any other part of Lebanon, you'll likely see a long queue of cars. And I spoke with many drivers who tell me that they simply are worried they can't afford to top up their their cars with gas anymore. And that means they can't go to work because there's no public transportation that's viable in the country. What we're seeing as well is gas stations actually closing their doors and hoarding whatever stock they have to sell at a higher price later. And of course, this causes a, a ripple effect across the entire economy. So now we're seeing arbitrary price hikes in grocery stores and other businesses that provide essential goods and services for people. And so people are now trying to panic buy as many basic items as they can. And of course, we're also seeing businesses hoarding and rationing whatever stock they have to sell at a higher price later. When it comes to Lebanon, it's really important to remember that the local currency has lost over 90% of its value against the dollar. And as these fuel prices continue to go up, the big question for many families is, How can I secure petrol to go to work 
to go from point A to point B and to secure fuel to keep the lights on at home without further compromising my quality of life. Unfortunately, that's a question a lot of people are asking themselves around the world right now. Another one, what is causing this dramatic rise in the first place? In the U.S. especially, that's not as obvious, because Russian oil and gas make up such a small part of the national fuel supply. Honestly, I hope that in the next couple weeks, Americans will start to realize that the villain here is not just Putin, (laughs) it's the oil industry. Amy Westerbaum is a climate reporter based in California. She's been working in the field for about 20 years, and we spoke just days after an important announcement in the U.S., Oil and gas prices have been on the rise ever since the war in Ukraine began. But in the U.S., there has been this significant jump since March 8th. And that's the day that U.S. President Joe Biden banned Russian imports of oil, gas, and coal to the U.S. Announcing the United States is targeting the main artery of Russia's economy. That means Russian oil will no longer be acceptable at U.S. ports and the American people will deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine. So tell me about that announcement. How did Biden justify this move and what consequences did he address? So he justified it by really talking about how dependent Russia is on its oil money to do things like invade Ukraine. <laughs> um, and and I think that's true. It's a fossil-fueled war, I don't think that Putin would be in a position to be doing what he's doing without having billions of dollars worth of oil money funding all of it. It's interesting that prices have spiked so much because we don't actually use that much Russian oil. 8% of U.S. imported oil comes from Russia, and it only represents about 2% of our overall fuel supply. So there's not really like a nuts and bolts direct line between that ban and what we're seeing at the pump. It's more just that the import ban sent a signal to the market that like if the U.S. is moving away from Russian oil, maybe other people will as well. And that's going to constrain supply in this way that makes the price of oil per barrel jump. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we actually have constrained supplies. You know, it's like the magical, mythical marketplace. (laughs) What she means by that is that the U.S. has no shortage of oil supplies at the moment. In fact, it exports more than it imports. We don't often hear the U.S. called an oil-rich country, but it is. That's why it can be so confusing that the fuel prices keep rising. Again, it's just more about market signals than actual supply of barrels on the ground. So I think that as economists are looking at the global picture and saying, okay, if the U.S. has put a ban on Russian imports, that's probably going to spur some other people too as well. What does the situation look like if Russian oil is out of the picture altogether? So that removes 30% of Europe's fuel. So where is that oil going to come from? Germany, for example, is one European country that heavily relies on Russian oil imports. The foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, delivered this warning on March 10th. 
If we were to stop all energy imports to Germany, but also other European countries overnight, it would mean that we would not have any electricity or warmth in a couple of weeks. And what would be a bigger favor to the Russian president than this? How many days could we cope with people not being able to get to work anymore? With not having electricity in preschools? With not being able to keep hospitals open? This is exactly the kind of destabilization that the Russian president would wish for. Amy says concerns like that are probably why we haven't seen President Biden impose an export ban. When she first saw gas prices rising, she'd wondered why Biden wasn't forcing American oil and gas companies to keep their supplies in the country and sell domestically for a lower price. But that would hurt Europe, which needs the fuel. The U.S. is actually supplying a lot of the oil and gas to Europe that they're not getting from Russia. So it is a little bit of of a situation of, okay, well, everybody just has to kind of deal with these higher prices as we wait to see whether Russian oil will continue to be part of the global market or not. Russia has threatened to withhold exports on its own and to cut off this main pipeline to Germany. Mm -hmm. Do you think that would ever actually happen? How would that affect Russia's economy? Honestly, I didn't think that Putin would actually go forward with invading Ukraine for fear of this pipeline getting canceled. So I think we're way past rational thought here. It doesn't make any sense for the Russian economy for him to do that. He might be looking at it and thinking, I'm going to cut off exports before they can ban imports to save face, maybe. And But... It looks to me like Europe is preparing itself to live without Russian oil and gas anyway, because they don't want to be caught off guard by a a decision that Putin makes. The EU wants to become independent of Russian gas as quickly as possible. Repower EU is the new strategy. It relies on many different energy suppliers, including wind, solar energy, and electricity from biogas. So that's a pretty bad move on his part, just purely from an economic standpoint, because you don't really want the market that's dependent on your product to suddenly realize that they can live without it. So take me to economics class 101. Do we have to just deal with these higher prices right now? Do American oil execs have the supply here to give the United States if they wanted to? Yes. The oil execs like to act as though they are hapless victims of the market. But in fact, they supply the oil and gas directly to gas stations. And they absolutely set the price of what they're selling to gas stations. They are also the ones that are entirely responsible for production volume. President Biden mentioned this in his speech as well. Though he's not a big supporter of increased oil drilling, He says the oil companies do have the power to increase production right now. The oil and gas industry has millions of acres leased. They have 9,000 permits to drill now. They could be drilling right now, yesterday, last week, last year. They have 9,000 to drill onshore that are already approved. So let me be clear. Let me be clear. They are not using them for production now. That's their decision. But the point is, they don't want to. Lower oil supply means higher prices, 
which is better for oil industry profits. Several executives have explicitly and publicly owned up to this truth. Here's Scott Sheffield, the CEO of Pioneer Natural Resources, when a reporter asked if he'd increase production to offset a disruption of Russian oil supply. Pioneer will stay with our plan, as I said, regardless of whether it's $150 oil, $200 oil, or $100 oil, we're not going to change our growth plans. If Russian oil is sanctioned, or if Russia decides to stop exporting, then it's going to be up to the Saudis and UAs to decide whether or not to break the pack and increase production yeah. under those guidelines. So if the president phoned you up, Scott, and said, you know what, we need some more oil, what are you going to say to him? I'll tell him it's all about the shareholders. Our shareholders own this company. They want a return of cash. We know what's happened when we increase U.S. shale too much over the last 10 years. It doesn't get much more straightforward than that. But Amy says, through years of creative PR, oil executives have confused the narrative on oil supply and demand. So this story that they have been telling that somehow Biden is keeping them from increasing production. Mm. The reality is the only people who make decisions about production of oil and gas are oil and gas companies. That's who decides. And of course, if they increased production, then that would increase our domestic supply, which could drive down prices. So yes, they could absolutely sell oil at below market rate if they so chose. They could absolutely increase production if they wanted to. What they are doing instead, as they're blaming all of this on the government and sometimes on Putin, is buying back stock and paying out really big dividends to their shareholders. (laughs) And is that because those same shareholders saw a decrease over the course of the pandemic? Yes, that's exactly right. So investors are very gun-shy when it comes to investing in oil and gas. You've seen the divestment movement has been pretty effective. That's a movement that's been pushing investors to stop funding companies fueling climate change. Not just in terms of campuses that are pulling their money out of portfolios that invest in, in fossil fuels, but also you're seeing insurance companies, other financial investors really shying away from this industry as climate risk increases. So in an effort to try to regain the confidence of at least some investors, they are paying back dividends, they're paying down debt that they incurred during the pandemic, and they're doing stock buybacks so that they will have more money in the bank moving forward. You mentioned that the U.S. ban on Russian imports was taking a hard line with Russia. And potentially it could set a standard for other countries to follow. Mm -hmm. So do you think other countries will follow the U.S.'s lead on this? So since March 8th, when Biden made this import ban announcement, there's been a lot of change in how the European governments in particular are talking about this. On the 7th, they were all saying, we're not in support of any kind of ban on Russian oil By Thursday of the same week, they were like, we can distribute some heat pumps. We've taken a hard look at this and like, it's tough, but not impossible. So the fact that they're publicly shifting that much makes me think, oh, wow, maybe they will actually do it, which would be pretty remarkable. The rising gas prices have led to 
other remarkable developments as well. For example, the U.S. has reopened talks with the Venezuelan government, led by President Nicolas Maduro, after years of tension. Journalist Nelson Bocaranda broke that down for us from the capital, Caracas. As the United States seeks to replace the 680,000 barrels a day it bought from Russia, Venezuela, Russia's number one partner in Latin America, quickly stepped up and met with senior officials from the White House to discuss this and other subjects in a meeting that, to state it quite shortly, surprised everyone. The U.S. is said to be looking for alternative countries to supply at will as it wants to boycott Russia's energy industry over its invasion of Ukraine. The Ukraine crisis and the skyrocketing price of fuel seem to be setting the stage for a more pragmatic approach to U.S.-Venezuelan relations. What many economists and experts predict might happen is for the United States to review those sanctions and offer Maduro's regime a lift on sanctions regarding the state-run oil industry in the near future. This could sever Venezuela's ties to Iran and Russia, two countries that have helped Venezuela. The economic estimates of these changes could double the income Venezuela had last year. And as a plus, the United States would also try to weaken Putin's relationship with Maduro. It's not yet a done deal that the U.S. will lift sanctions on Venezuela in exchange for oil supply. But it's a huge shift that officials are even considering it. Another shift? The oil situation is also affecting the Iran nuclear deal talks in Vienna. Here's my colleague Maziar Mothamedi, based in Tehran. Iran has continued to blame Washington for the delay in the talks, but Putin uh, did uh, contradict that, in a sense, when he said that Washington is ready to sign any deal with Iran just in order to get its oil back in the market. Now, Iranian oil could have an impact on global prices and help control the prices a little bit, but it alone can't compensate for the Russian absence. So this energy crisis is impacting geopolitics all over the world. It's complicating trade and political relationships. But ultimately, Amy says, the past month has underscored that the problem is bigger than just where the oil comes from. I think it it shows how much it has consolidated power into the hands of very few people. I think it shows us exactly how vulnerable we are in the situation that we find ourselves in, which is this total dependence on oil in general. And I think that a really important thing for people to remember is that the problem is not dependence on foreign oil, in air quotes. The problem is dependence on oil across the board. Being reliant on that commodity and that industry is inherently unstable. They've talked for years about the fact that all this drilling needs to happen to to make the country more secure and to shore up national security, blah, blah, blah. We are no more secure. We are no more stable. We're no more insulated from things going on in the rest of the world. Um, So I think that maybe people will come out of this with some new thinking around that. So keeping all of that in mind, I ask this knowing that there is privilege and even 
thinking about it and having the ability to do it. And I ask it also as someone who is seriously considering it for myself and has been test driving electric cars. Are you thinking of going electric? And what is your own, what are your life decisions that are going into the kind of work that you do? Yeah, I actually um, have an electric bike, which is like how I get around in the small town I live in. I do own a car, but I'm actually in the process of selling it. So that's feels exciting for me. But I like to say it's about the power structure, not the power source. <laughs> you know, um, a lot of people are like, oh, if we just, you know, plug all of our stuff into a different energy source, then that'll solve the problem. But, you know, we're already seeing some pretty big issues with lithium mining for EVs, for example, or other rare earth minerals for solar, for example. I really feel like what we need is a better decision-making framework that takes all of these impacts into account so that we're not trading one thing for a slightly less bad thing, that we're actually changing how we do things in a way that values human life and dignity and ecosystems and all of those things that we need to live. Yeah. Thank you, Amy. Um, dropping that perspective there, that's just what I needed to hear. Uh, I think that's really important. So thank you for sharing your wisdom and your expertise with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilve with Nagin Oliai, Alexandra Locke, Ruby Zeman, Ney Alvarez, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Aya Al-Milek and Munira Al-Dusari are The Take's engagement producers. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. And Stacey Samuel is executive producer. We'll be back.